sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everyone. And thanks for tuning into the show. Listener letters and requests, they're always welcome. You know that. We are the story guys at gmail.com is how you get them to us. And usually we're sort of one to one on this show. So, like, we take a single letter, we devote an episode. Uh, but I, I think we'll slightly break that format this week because recently yes, everything is coming up Limp Biscuit for us. We could be talking about Springsteen, uh, <laughs> you know, Ry Cooter, Eric Clapton, but instead. We're going to talk about this band. I want to do a Ry Cooter episode. I want to do a Ry Cooter episode. Let's just go ahead and put that on the agenda. I want to do an episode about Ralph Macchio in that movie where he's doing Ry Cooter, right? (laughs) Anyway, I hated this fucking band. Okay, okay. I I hated them in the 90s. They were a symbol about what I hated about what MTV did. I hated them from what they stood like they were – symbolized Woodstock 99 yeah, to me. Yeah. I walked out of the sanitarium, summer sanitarium tour when uh, their their set started because I wanted to make a statement to myself and everyone else to screw those guys. All right. And, and when MTV went full reality, I felt like they were this sophomoric, idiotic, white rap metal thing. And it just seemed, I, it, was, it was at that point where I started to feel like I'm maybe too old. For this, and I wasn't even that old at the time, so that's twenty plus years ago. Yeah, and sometime between in the last twenty years or so, I began to really like a song called "Break Stuff." And it doesn't even really matter if they had any other songs. I just am there for that. Well, let's the, let the record show that when they started to sort of come back into the good graces of people in 21, you were one of the first people where I was like, something's happening because Murdoch keeps watching uh, YouTube videos of Limp Bizkit. What is happening to that guy and to yeah. the world? Well, it's they, they did Lollapalooza in Chicago is like a one-off date and he and Fred Durst asked the crowd, Raise your hand if this is your first Limp Biscuit concert. And I was like, none of these people were alive during Woodstock '99. Yeah, like what a friend. Like, and the fact that a whole new audience likes that band. Yeah. But anyway, so people, we've we've had more than one letter about. Limp yeah, Biscuit. we we've been accumulating requests literally, and and. This has been happening for a while. There's a bonus episode in the archives from back in August of 21 when what sort of this time period I'm talking about with you. Uh, this was around the time that Woodstock documentary and well there were two of them I think, but uh, yeah, they both came, yeah, they they both came out and you and I on that episode discussed Fred Durst specifically. And you and I have also both attended a Limbisky concert in the last 6 months. And as yep. some of our Patreon subscribers know, I think, my life has been intersected more specifically with this period of rock history via some other projects that I've been working on over the last year, including being on a recent episode of the New Metal Agenda podcast with Holiday Kirk. I was on that show specifically to talk about Limbiscuit. So all that to say, if we're going to do that on another show, I now have to do it on this show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's officially Biscuit time. You wrote us letters. We have more than one. Okay, so but for me personally, Brian... 
I have never had so much vitriol for an artist and then went to watch a show of theirs or watch their shows on YouTube or just watch different versions of Break Stuff Live on YouTube. <laughs> you know what they say? We haven't had that spirit here since 1999. <laughs> that is, is that's, that, that's how... the line. That's the line. There you go. Here's how I think we approach it. Let's just... First, let's lay out the basic backstory of this band, set up their formation, talk a little bit about their history, and then we can dive right in to this handful of direct questions we have about them from different periods in their history. To start, let's reference one sentence from one of these letters, which is the sentence, quote, I love Limp Biscuit, but I don't love Fred Durst like most people. Now, quote. people say this. I'm glad you brought this up because there's a problem with that sentiment. You can't really right. separate the two. Anything you're going right. to read about Limbiscuit in the early days is pretty much built on this idea that they survive and eventually thrive on his back. In terms of the amount of grassroots promotion he is willing to do for this project he has, this thing he's building. This is pre-internet. He doesn't have social media to fall on. And this is a guy going, and this is a quote, to record stores to get people involved. He was in touch with the high schools. That was someone talking about how he got people listening to his band in the early days. And I don't know how much of this has been recast in the narrative in retrospect, but the story they tell now is Fred's idea was basically we'll get a fan base and we'll get famous purposely by being antagonistic. My favorite example of this in a non-overt way is he starts this band with a guy named John Otto, a guy who has been in the band almost the entire time. It has basically never gotten the headlines in the household name that Fred or, or Wes Borland, who we will talk about soon get right. John Otto is a classically trained jazz drummer. He went to school for it. And what I mean by using this as an example of the antagonism is that they aren't advertising the actual musical pedigree that they contain. <laughs> they are not. No, they are purposely going to name this band one of the grossest things they can possibly think about. Here, here's a list of other names considered for this band. Uh, Gimp Disco. Split, That's a good one. Split Dick Slit. <laughs> Just, just hard to say. I've got to say, good call not calling it that just because of tripping over your own tongue. Uh, it's worse. Bitch Piglet and, and Blood Fart all in the running. It would be weird if you had to say, and the Grammy goes to... <laughs> Here's a, a direct quote from Mr. Durst. The name is there to turn people's heads away. A lot of people pick up the disc and go, Limp Biscuit. oh, they must suck. Those are the people that we don't even want listening to our music. And here's a, here's a quote from Wes Borland later. Quote, the best way to get our message across is through shock value. That's what grabs people, getting people to react by showing something negative and hoping something positive will come out of it. And that is the other part of this equation that Fred gets. This antagonism only works if there is some curiosity to see in the first place, right? So he becomes determined. This is pre-internet. To make sure that this thing to see is the live show. Two ways to do this, right? Outlandish songs, outlandish costumes, 
And are we going to talk about the giant toilet? We can talk, we just we, like leave yeah. that to everyone's imagination. We, we can talk about the giant toilet, the giant toilet anytime you want. Uh, so West dressing up <laughs> is here from pretty much the beginning. So anybody that knows this band, we don't even really need to mention it, but he often is in costume. He's got contacts in, he does things to his eyes and his face and all sorts of stuff. Right. So that becomes part of the show. Now in 2024, they all dress up, which I think yeah. when they came back, we all sort of forgot that they, you know, costumes were part of the gig, and it was like, I don't understand why Fred's coming out looking like that. Uh, but yeah. now it's it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. The other thing is, in this mix, very early, they are covering Faith by George Michael. Yeah, and there's more than one cover song that gets them a reputation in Florida nightclubs in the early days. It's not only Faith, but my favorite Paul Abdul song, Straight Up. I would like to hear this version. I have not been able to find their version. I don't know that they ever committed it to tape officially. But again... Oh, oh, oh. probably not. (laughs) This is an internet tactic, right? Being done pre-internet. Now, this is a very quick way for a rock band to rack up streaming attention. You cover a non-traditional song. In 1996, Biscuit's doing the live version of this. They are putting into their shows almost every time one or both of these songs. And you can't talk about Limp Biscuit in this era if you were familiar with what was happening without talking about corn. Uh-huh. Um, even like the Woodstock thing, you can't really get away from the two bands. They're somehow connected. Famously, Fred tries to give the band free tattoos as a way to get their attention. And it works. They take them on tour while they're still unsigned. It gets them tons of attention. They get offered a record deal from Flip Records. They pass on that because MCA comes calling and offers them more money. This whole thing could be its own episode. It really could. Right before these record deals show up, Wes Borland leaves the band. They had attempted to bring in a second guitar, but then they bring in DJ Lethal from House of Pain. If you don't remember, that's where DJ Lethal came from. So Durst and Borland aren't seeing eye to eye. Borland leaves the band, and then this, do we go with Flip Records or do we go with MCA, starts to happen. They have to make that decision. And so they're going to go record this record, and on the way to California from Florida, the dudes flip their van, not once, not twice, five times, and all of them get seriously hurt. In the aftermath of this, two big things happen. MCA pressures them to get back to work too quickly, and Fred, with a new lease on life, makes things right with Borland, and now he's back in the band. And the guys take MCA Records' response to them as a sign that they don't want to be in business with them, and they will end up through expensive and complicated business maneuvers going back to Flip Records, to that deal. So part of this singular determination that Limp Biscuit has leads to singular success, not just for them, but for other people who they encounter along the way. They bring people along with them, somewhat inadvertently, but somewhat purposely. They end up making a handful of careers in the music business for people. And it's funny because now some of these people I don't think would ever associate with them, or you would never associate them with Limp Bizkit. Uh, but there are quite a few folks who get careers because they got on the Limp Bizkit train early. Yeah, and if you got on this train in the mid-90s, it was a risky bet. And it majorly paid off. Couple sure. couple of examples. The guy who runs the nightclub in Florida where they break goes on to be one of the biggest music festival promoters in the country. It's Danny Wimmer. We're very familiar with him here uh, in our hometown. And they launched the career of a guy who will become fairly powerful in the music biz and who will have 
eventually be the president of Geffen Records by the end of the 90s. And the reason he gets that gig is because of the cred that the immense popularity of Limbisky gets him. And that guy's name is Jordan Schur. And Schur started his own record label in 94 and raised two million dollars 30 years ago in funding for that and it's pretty fledgling until he gets limp biscuit and then he goes hard in the paint with a gamble and takes a crazy bet he ends up buying out their recording and management contract after the mess with mca and he personally finances their first record. It's amazing how well this works out for him. Can you? I just want to imagine for a moment, like this is me and you, that I'm your friend and you're Jordan, Jordan Schur, and you come to me and you're like, I am going to take all of the money that I have left, basically, and I'm going to, I'm going to get this band out of their contract, I'm going to take over their management, I'm going to do everything, and I promise you this is going to be my big ticket. Do you want to hear the song? Do you want to hear the song? And then you play me... <laughs> Their cover of faith. <laughs> yeah. And just to finish this setup, which is amazing, this is what happens basically. They all pour all of their trademark antagonism and determination into promoting this album. And it takes two years, but it gets this record to break wide eventually. Yeah. And that's that record, $3 Bill, y'all, which is, you know, basically again being antagonistic taken from a slur and turned into a name of a record but in june of 99 they will release the follow-up to this they call it significant other and then they become a juggernaut and this is obviously where woodstock 99 happens and their long relationship with antagonizing an audience becomes seen on this big national platform i think this should set us up to start tackling some of these letters and let's do this chronologically that means we're going to start with this question from Rob S. Hey, love the podcast. I heard Limp Biscuit might have filmed a video on top of the World Trade Center just before 9-11. Love to hear the story. Yeah, is that familiar to you? Thanks for your letter, Rob. Um, I missed this story the first time until we actually got this letter. So the, the video in question here is for the song Rollin', which will come off of that chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water LP. That means what you think it does or maybe you've never thought about. Just think about it for a while. Uh, it, yeah. that, that comes out in 2000, and it's just a weirdly repulsive, purposeful naming choice, like all of the things they do. For me, it's the grossest thing ever for naming. <laughs> There's two versions of this song. One's more rap-oriented, and the other one's more rock-oriented. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the rap one. version right. is actually first, and the band decides to flip the importance they put on the versions, and they lean into the rock version after that. Now, why the World Trade Center? I, I didn't find a quote on the record that directly addressed this, but the level of excess it portrays had to be part of this, I think, right? So we're at this pinnacle of the band's success at this point. So why not film this thing on what, at that time, in 1999, would have felt like the top of the world? But a looser reason for how this video looks and who and what it involves, and, and this was new to me, is centered around the movie Zoolander. You mention Zoolander a lot. You say Zoolander good looks. That's one of your trademark phrases. Uh, mm -hmm. You're a fan of that movie, right? I am now. However, I wasn't when it came out. Yeah. I worked for a radio group that was owned by Viacom. Viacom also owned Paramount, who put out that film. Right. So we had a screening that we showed our listeners. We gave them free tickets to come see it. And the product placement 
for things that were owned by Viacom, and it made, me, made my stomach hurt because it was so gross thinking about. Dude, like, have, the have we ever talked about this? Quick side note to get distracted for just a moment. Have we ever talked? Yeah. I think we have on the show about how, like, I remember in elementary school watching a video about product placement, and they were showing us scenes in Bill and Ted where there was Coca-Cola and Lay's potato chips and being like, this is product placement. And all I could say was like, all I could think at the time was I hadn't seen Bill and Ted. And I was like, God, I want to see that movie so bad. <laughs> and I want a Coke. Yeah. And I want, look, isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, so we held a screening and I thought it was a terrible movie. And so did a lot of our listeners, including one woman who came out and said to me, to my face, that was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> where I had to say the same thing to her that I said to everyone else walking out. Do you want a poster? <laughs> oh, my God. Radio and media promotions, man. If you haven't done it, you just don't know. Okay, so this is I, it's funny that we had this same experience, but... I think it's worth pointing out if this is a, if you have a, if you're a newer listener to our show and you, you're not super familiar with Murdoch and I and our dynamics, so we're best friends, but we are almost a decade apart. And so when we talk about these things that are really, really in, from a certain time period, like Limp Biscuit, we experience this at different phases in our life. So I was sort of the prime audience for Limp Biscuit and for Zoolander and for all of that because I'm in college when all this hits, and. This movie, Zoolander, drops my freshman year of college at the height of file sharing. And so I watch it on a shitty computer in a shitty dorm room while it's I could have paid $6 and gone down the street to see it in the movie theater, right? So I see some bootleg version of it. And, you know, this is something that we should point out. Fred Durst, antagonistically, again, antagonist, he supported file sharing. He was a big guy on the file sharing thing. He was the one artist who was standing up and being like all up in the in the pro Napster camp. So I saw this bootleg version of this movie and I did not think it was funny because I now think it is very important to see that movie with other people. I also married yes. a, I also married a woman who thinks that's the funniest movie ever. So I <laughs> I now have to think it's pretty funny, but I I do. I do think that if you watch it with a group and you quote it, uh you know, you talk about the gasoline fight or whatever, uh I appreciate it a lot more. But at the time it was uh, a bit of a challenge for me. And so uh, bringing this all back to Limp Bizkit, Limp Bizkit and the Zoolander movie are connected. Yeah, which is true. I have an aside for you. Do you know that Napster did a tour they sponsored? Yeah, with Limp Bizkit. With Limp Bizkit. Is that the cage it's, tour where they just put with, them in the cage? And with Cypress Hill. Oh, that's that right. Was, that was the first time I saw them. And uh, I came to see Cypress Hill. Um, and it was like going to, it was the most rowdiest freaking thing I've ever been to. It was so weird. Anyway, so Zoolander, getting back to the movie that your wife thinks is the funniest thing ever, Fred Durst is in that movie. Yeah, just real briefly, he shows up. I had forgotten that. He, in the name of synergy, yeah. because Fred Durst is in the movie, Ben Stiller and Steven Dorff get a cameo at the front end of this video for Roland. And they're worked into the plot of the whole thing because it's presumably, so there's like two things that are happening in the video. One is they're performing on the top of the World Trade Center and the other is they're running around in a nice car in New York. And that car is presumably supposed to be like Ben Stiller and Steven Dorff's car and they leave it at the valet with Fred Durst and then he drives around everywhere with it, right? And so yeah. that's that's all of the sort of, corporate tie-in speaking of corporate synergy like you mentioned uh that's happening with this music video yeah and so rob says quote 
might have filmed a video on top of the World Trade Center just before 9-11. This is a great example on how stories get stretched when they're spread around, like the telephone game. Right, right, right. Because this video is shot on the South Tower, but it's actually filmed in September of 2000. But there's a reason that it seems like you've heard it was closer to 9-11. And that's a slightly different anecdote. Yeah, because... What does happen the week before 9-11 is the MTV Video Music Awards. That's on ah, September 6th. Did you like those? Did you, was there ever a phase where you were like, MTV Video Music Awards, that's my, that's my jam. Gotta get home. Yeah, sure. I mean, there was a point it's, at some point in the 90s where I, dial, I tuned out. But yeah, from the get-go, like from the very first one, until like mid nineties or somewhere, I stopped watching it. But I I did watch it still when this was happening for sure. So this like, is September sixth, two thousand one. Yeah. So yeah. do that math. Roland will take home a trophy, and then a few days later, Fred and company receive a letter and a fruit basket. And that letter and that fruit basket are from the New York Port Authority, which is just yeah. they they had a good PR person, they had a good assistant to the whoever at that New York Port Authority at that time, because they thought through, you know what? Let's thank them for thinking of us when they shot this video. We got to do this thing, and, you know, it's probably good for tourism, et cetera, et cetera, right? By the way, Port Authority has a great Instagram account. Check that out. It's for real terrific. Um, <laughs> they, like, personify New York and the Port Authority. It's, it's They're great. They're good at hiring it's, marketing people, apparently, for 20 clearly. years of writing. Yeah, the story Fred and Wes will tell going forward is that they get a fruit basket and a note on September 10th, 2001. And here's Wes talking, quote, Boy, did the video for Roland backfire. After 9-11, everyone stopped playing it. No one wanted to see it, and neither did we, end quote. It's like the uh, Ryan Adams New York video. Yeah. Forgot all about that with yeah. the trade center yeah so yes rob uh this story is true ish the video was filmed a year before the attacks but then it really received its public and private honors the week of the attack so it really does feel closely associated and of course they have the distinction of being the last act to ever play the world trade center that used to be a thing i used to live in new york and a lot of bands yeah played around the world trade center right not so necessarily on there topic. are a few that actually played on the tower so in 1990 Depeche Mode does a promotional video for Enjoy the Silence, which is a great song, uh, that was shot by French TV. And they lip sync while standing up at the top of the World Trade Center at the Rooftop World Observatory. And of course, the the imagery and the and footage that like includes the towers, like you're talking about Ryan Adams, like that that imagery is used in a lot of videos. Everybody from Blondie to Madonna, et cetera, in the '80s. But the more common way of playing at the World Trade Center, and you sort of mentioned this, was actually playing Tobin Plaza. Right. The original World Trade Center had a massive five acre plaza which all of the buildings in the complex, including the Twin Towers, centered on. And in 82, the plaza between the Twin Towers re- was renamed after the man who authorized the construction of the original World Trade Center. His name was Austin Tobin. Uh, and during the summer, the Port Authority installed a portable stage. And from roughly 87 until the attacks, there were concerts at certain times of the year. And I saw the box tops with Alex Chilton. Oh, and I man. Only- and I only remember that through a days of 20 years of memories of having like talking about this like, oh, yeah, that's right. I saw the box tops with Alex Chilton and I only knew one song. Yeah, well, it was the, the letter. Right. Of course, uh, the way the plaza was laid out, you could do like 6000 people. 
so there were a lot of like decent promo shows and there were a lot of radio shows. There was I found lists and different things. There's a Facebook page if you want to dig in the show notes that I found that has chronicled a lot of this stuff and has sort of crowdsourced information about who did you see there. And so there were like the end of the nineties, there was a country radio station in New York that did all like basically did all their like lunchtime showcase shows up there, like we used to do when we were in radio. But if you go look at the group of people that they had, it's crazy because there's like nineties country names you'll recognize if you know that scenario but there's also uh people who were like brand new at the time like dixie chicks and keith urban uh who were playing and then there was also classic stuff like leslie gore the trogs the bangles you know all sorts of people played around the world trade center go check that out in the show notes if that's interesting to you by the way leslie gore sunshine and lollipops is a terrific tune and one of homer simpson's favorite songs i went to a record release party inside of windows of the world once and that was neat as hell but, yeah. all right one letter down oh okay so <laughs> indeed up next we have a letter from avery do you want to read this one yeah yeah avery writes the show to say i can't remember if you guys have done an episode on i can't believe we're gonna read this letter from avery on the eddie van halen fred durst tank story oh, God. it's probably my favorite story from rock history and I'd love to hear you guys talk about the story so freaking good. I can't oh believe God. we're going to tell this story. Yeah. And if you've never heard this story, hold on to your handbags. It's the craziest shit. Craziest Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen story ever. So sure. I went to try to triple verify because I'm like, there's no way this is true. I went looking for police records. Now, I mean, I didn't find them because no. nobody says the police were ever called, so I'm not necessarily sure no. that would have been an indicator. But I was like, is is there like some call that was made to the L.A. County <laughs> Center where they were like, there's a man on a tank. Anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You immediately knew what she was talking about. As soon as I showed you this letter, you're like, oh my God, the tank story. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been spending a lot of time with 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 Eddie Van Halen in the last at least year or so. Um, and, and this isn't me giving a, taking a shot at Taylor Hawkins, but like, where was Eddie Van, Eddie Van Halen's like two weekend tribute, like concert since he was arguably one of the best guitar players of all time, like better than Jimmy page, like as influential yeah. as Jimmy Hendrix, yeah. but like he, he didn't get any of that. Um, but, um, I, I've been spending all this time and, and obviously amazing guitar player. And, and since he's passed away, there's all these really neat stuff that people have uploaded on YouTube. That's just fascinating. But I, I've been reading about the good times and bad times. And this particular story comes from a very dark period uh, in, in Eddie's life. Yeah, there's some loosely connected episodes from back in the spring of 22 that if you're a longtime fan of the show, you might remember. If you're not, you might want to go check them out. Episode 91 and 94, they both involve a lot of Van Halen history. And in all of the work on the production of those episodes, I worked through a lot of core Van Halen texts. So I also was not unfamiliar with this period. One of those books, and I don't know if you've dug through this. I think you have, Murdoch. Have you, you've gone through Eruption, right? The Conversations yeah. with Eddie Van Halen. This is a collection of interviews that have a narrativized chronicling of the band that weaves them together. And so if you don't know much, I mean, for me, Van Halen, when we started working on those shows back a couple years ago, I really never had a personal connection to their music. So it was very academic for me. And as an academic subject, I love Van Halen. Like they're such an interesting band. 
full of so many different personalities. And at the core are these brothers. And I love sibling stories. I always say sibling stories are my favorite. I love stories about brothers and brothers and sisters and groups of, of step siblings. You know, just this idea of the influence parents have over you and the situations you're put in that you have no over, no control over and then what you make of them. And so the Van Halen brothers are this fascinating and beautiful story of that. Right. Um, but you, you get to hear these firsthand accounts inside eruption of what Eddie was facing physically and mentally at the beginning of the 2000s. Now, the guys that write this, their names are Brad Tolinsky and Chris Gill, and they refer to this period loosely as the lost years. Yeah, and it's pretty tough for Eddie because despite the fact that like Dave is the front man, then Sammy's the front man, once Gary Sharon is brought in from Extreme for that one record, like the band kind of takes the hit from that oh, even yeah. though carrie sharon is talented and can sing like, i like that record but again they're an academic subject to me i'm not emotionally attached yeah. but i think the record's really good and i think that record sucks ass but, <laughs> so, so this this dark period is a bunch of things that happens to, to eddie so the band having kind of like a dark time is one thing his marriage to valerie bertinelli has totally fallen apart oh yeah he has health issues um, his alcohol use has really uh, like gotten heavy. And then he had hip surgery and then he had a cancer diagnosis that cost him part of his tongue, which is just crazy. If you've never heard of that, he really stops taking care of himself. And some people might say mental breakdown. It may not be the best term, but he is in an unhealthy headspace. So it's so important to know and understand this history. For me, eventually, the really dark stuff to see is in 2004, they do the reunion with Sammy, and he's out of tune after thousands of shows as a guitar player who could play drunk all the time. The muscle memory starts to disappear. He missed entire portions of his guitar solo. Like His technique looks sloppy, and he's not hitting notes. And no shirt, dirty pants. Yep. Like, he doesn't even look like himself at all. But, you know, he does the Eddie thing, and people have no idea in concert that he really seems to look like he's a disaster, even though kind of is. Yeah, so, there, there's but, there's a portion in that book where they're talking about, and I forget which band member, but, like, a couple of the band members during that period that you're talking about said that when they would be on stage, they would know that it was about to get rough because he would disappear and he would come back with his hair up in a samurai bun. That's right, yeah. And, and two, this is, if you watch foot, this is so nerdy, but I have to tell this, and maybe Avery will like this too. This is what's super nerdy about Eddie is that on this tour, Wolfgang is old enough to come out on stage and he comes out on stage during the solo periodically at some dates and you see them like embrace and he like kisses him on the face. And I didn't know when Michael Anthony wasn't touring with him. I was like, what a dick. Like they were so mean to Michael Anthony in the press. Absolutely. They were. But what I didn't understand was that he wanted to be close to his son because he knew he had cancer. Well, yeah. And, and he had messed this saved all up. His life. Wolfie too, saved yeah. his Wolfie saved his life. And part of all of what was going on, you said the marriage was breaking down is he's losing custody of Wolfgang. So yeah. all of this stuff is happening in tandem, and it's during this period of time. So just imagine all of that crap. Pick one of those things that would destroy most humans. Put all of them on a guy, and then have him show up at a party, an industry party, 
where he meets Fred Durst. Yeah. Avery gets 18 thumbs up for this letter, by the way. <laughs> Let's set the timetable as best we can in relation to what we've discussed. Okay. So everybody uh-huh. understands what's happened. So let's just let's back up. So September 6, 2001, MTV Video Music Awards. September 10th, The Fruit Basket. September 11th, The Attacks. October, Fred Durst releases a statement on the Limp Biscuit website that reads as follows. Limp Biscuit and Westmoreland have amicably decided to part ways. Both Limp Biscuit and Westmoreland will continue to pursue their respective musical careers and both with each, wish each other the best in all future endeavors. Yeah, screw you. So I'm sure that's what that really that message means. So <laughs> Wes leaves the band. This is now the second time. And as part of this statement, Fred makes some promises saying the band will, quote, comb the world for the illest guitar player known to man to replace Wes. <laughs> and hence commences a paid partnership and promotion with Guitar Center that will become known as Put Your Guitar Where Your Mouth Is. I gotta say, say what you want about the guy. Fred does not fuck around when it comes to capitalizing on his situations. Nah, it's true. And it, it's pretty apparent from the, I, I followed this band. I don't like, here's where I like, didn't like this band, but I followed this because I couldn't not follow you could, this. Yeah, you couldn't look away, right? I think West Borland went to Father Ryan Academy in Nashville. I remember like when they broke, some people were like, oh yeah, I knew people went to high school with that guy. And I'm like, the guy with the face with the contact lenses? I couldn't believe this was <laughs> like totally uh, a thing. So it was clear to me that this Guitar Center thing was a, it's kind of a sham. It's no yeah, one's going to get it was the total gig stunt. because, yeah. No guitar players are really showing up at Guitar Center to for this gig. So well, no, I mean people they, people are showing up. That's the problem. Okay. Like a, I need to, yeah, a, I need to rewind that. Really talented guitar players are not <laughs> showing up at Guitar Center to audition. No, no me, for, I'm showing yeah. up with my seven chords. Like I'm like, yeah. yeah, dude, I think I can handle that, bro. I got the attitude. That's what counts, right? Yeah, so no one that's auditioning there, average Guitar Center customer, is going to get the gig. But they do record with a person or two, already in established bands, but they never release what they put together. And by mid-2002, Fred is – this is so good. Fred is pus- putting Wes's personal email address online and telling friends to beg him to come back. It's unbelievable. So I think at some point they actually record with the guy from Snot. And, yes, that's true. Yeah, and then they never release it. So in the middle of this, this is when Fred is at this party, and Eddie gets introduced to him. And there's a record yeah. exec, and I just, when I hear this story, I just picture the slimiest of all the record execs. And he makes a joke about, oh, I guess you're looking for a guitar player there, huh, Fred? I found one. Why don't you have any addition to being <laughs> Limp Biscuit? Yeah. This, by the way, is has been – I've read it in more than one place. So I'm going to try to say that this quote stands as a real quote, which I'm going to read. And I'm so excited to say this out loud. Fred reportedly responds to this and says, quote, that would be hilarious. The greatest guitar player ever plays with the worst band ever. To which Eddie Van Halen replies, fuck it, let's jam. <laughs> And it happens. <laughs> well, there's, it really happens. There is this thing with Fred, especially in this particular period. He knew he was getting away with it. And, and what I mean is he knew yeah. people were straight up eating his bullshit. And the more he pretended and the more he played along, 
the more ridiculous opportunities he was going to get because the entire world seemed to just want to see what would happen if they empowered someone who seemed juvenile and stupid. Does this sound like any, anything else that's happened in the last eight years? And sure. the joke on everyone, of course, in both of those scenarios, is that the man in the center of this all is not stupid at all. So here's the important thing to remember. When David Lee Roth was in Van Halen up to 84, there was a rule that they had that no members could do anything outside of the band. Uh, yeah, that's and right. And the reason why the guitar solo on Beat It happens, is Eddie told the story on Larry King, is that everyone was out of town and he couldn't <laughs> ask anybody. <laughs> and Eddie Van Halen told Larry King, this is the funniest shit ever. <laughs> this is a real quote. Who's going to know if I play on this black kid's record anyway? Oh, my God. And this isn't the king of pop. This is Fred Durst with his gigantic toilet on stage. This all happens at Fred Durst's house. Now, Eddie, right? will, Eddie will famously say that it was like, quote, being a scholar amongst kindergartners. Uh, and there's not a ton of music making after a certain point. I think they just smoke weed. And the story goes that Eddie didn't stay very long because he didn't enjoy it. But when he leaves, he leaves his gear, like leaves some of his equipment there. And, and so he calls Fred the next day and he gets no response. And he waits a day and he calls Fred again and he gets no response. This is Eddie Van Halen, so put him up there with Jimi Hendrix in terms of guitar players. He's calling Fred Durst from Limp Bizkit. He's not returned his phone calls, and his gear is at his house. So Eddie decides to go get his gear. But they clearly hadn't hit it off, right? They're not friendly. So Eddie's on the defensive, and he's not in a good state of mind. He's worried that yeah. his asshat is fucking with him, right? So... He, you know, he he might have, under clear or different circumstances, been like, okay, this guy's just a stone dumbass who forgets to return phone calls. But that's not the attitude he has or the approach he decides to take. He decides that he is only going to make one trip. That's correct. And Avery will be very excited for us to say this out loud. So, so he, drives he drives a, a tank. fucking tank to Fred Durst's house. True so, story that we can possibly confirm with everybody. Now, how did he do this? Okay, a few things. Eddie had a lot of money and a lot of spare time and a lot of paranoia and unhealthy energy. So remember all that. Yeah, and he also has a history of, like a lot of other people, wanting to fuck with someone using a tank. Oh, shit, are we going to talk about Aerosmith? Oh, the troll of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's important to remember... That at the end of the 70s, Aerosmith was in bad shape as well, the Toxic <laughs> Twins, and falling from grace with the world. Everything. Things were farting, is finally starting to look great for Van Halen, though. The opposite. They're on their way up. And they both got scheduled to play the 1979 California World Music Festival at the Coliseum in L.A. Okay, so the way I've heard this is, long story short, Van Halen wants to illustrate their dominance and make like a visual statement to the crowd in the world that they have arrived and that Aerosmith is on the way out, right? They're seating the throne. So this is all in Crazy from the Heat, the David Lee Roth book. You've read that, haven't you? Yes, uh, and if you put that at the timeline and how old I was, I wasn't in middle school yet, Brian, <laughs> and I own that book. That so, is correct. Here's the quick version, okay? The venue has a bunch of stairs down to the stage that the audience can see. So Van Halen buys a VW bug to put on one of the landings and they rent a Sherman tank oh, from a Hollywood prop house or movie studio. Their plan is to get the PA announcer, who's their pal, 
to make announcements all day that whoever from Aerosmith left their VW bug on the landing and needs to move it. And so then they're going to send the tank down those stairs and crush the VW. And I got to say, like, I just don't really think this works as a bit. Like, I, I think they were really high or drunk when they came up with this idea. Like, it's only kind of funny, and it's a lot of work. But then what they're going to do is once they drive the tank down the stairs and go over the VW, then they're going to pop out of the tank, run on stage, and start the show, right? And it's yeah. just going to be an awesome fuck you to Aerosmith, I guess. Dave grabs the... The microphone goes, all right, we got a take. So they get as far as testing it. This is so freaking crazy. They have two VW Beetles, one to test and one to use. So they take all the glass and engine stuff out. So when they test it, it just smushes it flat. So it's going to be epic. But according to David Lee Roth, Aerosmith somehow get wind of this. And they come up with a video response, which seems weak sauce to me. But it was gonna ex- it was gonna involve planes shooting at tanks when they come on stage. And so David Lee Ross says that they decided not to do it. I I think that's bunk. I think there was bigger reasons for not doing it. Someone told them not to. They didn't want to spend the money. Something because this feels very much like a rock star re-narrativizing something that he doesn't like in his story, right? But whatever, regardless, they don't actually get to screw with this huge rock band with a tank. And so that's got to that's gotta be hanging over Eddie and all of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, cocaine's a hell of a drug, I'm sure. Woo! Um, right? Eddie doesn't care. So the story that my understand, he, he purchased an assault vehicle from a military auction. Right. And that shit is not street legal. I don't think I need to say that and be funny, but Eddie doesn't care. He drives that tank through L.A., through Beverly Hills to Fred Durst's house, to his yard. One of the chief sources for this story is Andrew Bennett. Uh, He has a coffee table book called Eruption in the Canyon. You can find a link in the show notes, but know that Andrew Bennett has made music videos for a lot of people over the years. But in the mid-2000s, he makes friends with Eddie, and he spends a whole bunch of time with him and ends up chronicling that reunion that we talked about around 2004 or after. So like 2006 to 2007 or something, he like spends most of a year with him every day. He's in the studio a whole bunch with him. But he also, as a part of that, gets stories like this one. According to him, this is the story that he has in that book. This quote, everybody, quote, Eddie drove that assault vehicle through L.A. into Beverly Hills, then parked it and left it running. Left it running. On that is front that lawn. is hardcore. Not only are you yeah. going to drive it there, you're just going to, hey, baby, leave the car on. Just leave it on. I'm going to park it on the front lawn of the house that Limp Biscuit <laughs> is rehearsing in. He was wearing no shirt when he got out. His hair was in a samurai bun on top of his head. His jeans held up like Grandpa Simpson with a strand of rope uh, and combat boots held together by duct tape. And he had a firearm. And now this is from Eddie's perspective. Quote, that asshole answered the door. I put my gun to that stupid fucking red hat of his and I said, where's my shit, motherfucker? And that fucking guy just turned to one of the employees and starts yelling at him to grab my shit. And this is back to Andrew Bennett's account. Quote, Eddie stood on the front lawn of a residential home in Beverly Hills in broad daylight, smoking a cigarette while holding a gun Good pointed Lord. on Fred Durst as he went back and <laughs> forth from the house to the assault vehicle, vehicle lugging amps and guitars. So, yeah, Avery, what a fucking story. 
thanks for thanks for bringing that up. It should also be noted it just not just tanks that Eddie likes to flaunt in public. He likes weapons. Sometime in the decade before this, I don't know if you know this story, 95, I think, Eddie yeah. gets in trouble in L.A. for taking a gun to the airport. Do you have that article that I pulled? Yeah, it's it's a Beretta. So it's from the April 11th, 1995 edition of the L.A. Times. Here's the actually from the article. Rockstar Eddie Van Halen will be charged today with carrying a loaded 25 caliber semi-automatic gun into the Burbank airport, a misdemeanor with a maximum penalty of $1,000, and six months in the county jail, prosecutors said on Monday. The Beretta was found inside a piece of carry-on luggage, and after being spotted in a routine x-ray security scan <laughs> as Van Halen was about to board a United Did Airlines flight. Did he think they weren't going to see it? Did he, like, put his shirts over it? Like, I don't understand why it was in the back. He liked weapons. He's famous. I mean, rich. Bottom line, yeah, the dude liked weapons. And I am sure to anyone, anyone under the age of 30 listening to that story, the idea of even having the option of getting close to an airport with a Beretta sounds preposterous. But... Let me just say, tying this back to 9-11, those pre-attack days were very, very different, especially at airports. Yeah, yeah, they were. By the way, I'd like to say of the two of us, I'm going to say I'm the only one that ever got a red card at an airport pre Oh, what is that? I was go- getting ready to go through the metal detector, and I, I was really delayed. Like, my flight had been delayed for hours and hours, and I was fucking shit-faced. And I drank... Uh, I met a girl at the bar. Why am I saying all these things? I shouldn't say. And <laughs> she ordered a, a tequila, a, a, a tequila grapefruit. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, and I said, "What the hell does that taste like?" And she goes, "A sweet tart." And I was like, "I'll have what she's having." So I had four or five of those. <laughs> oh Jesus! And then she just splits on me. I think I'm like met a friend, and I, I'm by myself. And I go to get through security, and I let I security I like let off the metal detector, and I just had all this change in my pocket, uh, and they're like empty your pockets, and it, it was different. It was pre nine eleven, and I just took like emptied my I opened up one of my pockets, and the change went all over the floor. And I was like I emptied my pockets, and, and someone took out a red card, and I had to go into a room. And they uh, they asked me a lot of questions about a lot of things. I didn't have a passport or anything. I was I was domestic, and oh luckily God, I didn't dude. get a. You've never told me that story. How did I make it this far in our friendship without knowing that story? I I don't have a story personally. It's em- no, it's, it's not embarrassing, a- Brian. Like it's I hilarious. Arrested, drunk so, in public. Uh, I I don't have a story of my own like that, but I did work for a guy who was a real ass hat. Speaking of ass hats on this episode, and I remember him coming back from a Thanksgiving. Uh, traveling expedition with his family and he had, they had gone ahead of him and he had gone separately and he got to the airport and it was this was after 9-11 but not super long probably like 06 05 06 and they he, he he tries to go through security and they fly they are looking at his bag and then they take him and they go sir we want to i mean essentially what you just described right they take him into the side room they sit him down and they don't talk to him for a while and he has no idea what's going on and so he waits and he waits and he waits and they finally come in and they're like sir and they just start asking him all the questions right where are you going what are you doing who are you meeting blah 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 blah, blah. and eventually at some point the guy throws his bag up on the table and goes, well, sir, can you explain why you are traveling with this? And he reaches into his bag and pulls out a giant butcher knife. And immediately the guy that I worked for realizes what happened, which is he had come home the night before, dropped his briefcase by the kitchen, the side kitchen Island. And at some point 
and cooking or cleaning, that knife had just slid off the counter and into his bag. And when he went to leave, he picked up his bag, never looked at it again, and went to the airport. Walks right up through security with a butcher knife in his bag. And I that story still makes me happy for the uh, hour or two that that guy had to sit in a small room and think about his life. <laughs> I, I, got, I didn't have to go to a room for this thing. But I did get stopped by the TSA because they stopped my grandmother, rest in peace, who was in a wheelchair and then wanted to search her purse and then gave her a pat down on which your buddy Murdoch from 20 years ago clearly said out loud, what the fuck are you doing this to my fucking 80 year old grandmother for? You know, and then I got in trouble for all that. (laughs) But I was just like, this 80-year-old said, sweet little lady. And then I got in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and I got in trouble for doing – I remember that was – because I was with my whole family. I was with my parents oh, and stuff. And Dang. That, that was not cool. <laughs> well, it seems appropriate to me when grandma's involved. So kudos to you. Okay, here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. We do have one more letter about Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit. This one specifically about Man Cow, the radio shock jock from Chicago, uh, and how he and Durst got into it in 2003. So if you want to hear that, this is what we're going to do, because we're way past our normal episode length here. Uh, we're going to throw it up on the Patreon. It's about 20 more minutes of audio discussing Limbiscuit, Fred Durst, and Man Cow, who, wow, that dude's a character as well. Uh, and you can get that for just just five bucks, man. Just go, We'll put it up at the lowest barrier of entry, but we really would appreciate your support. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this show, and obviously we want to keep uh, getting the word out and being able to promote and grow uh, what we're doing here. So if you head over to patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories, you will have access to uh, this additional 20 minutes about Limp Biscuit. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, get involved there. And the website is wearethestoryguys.com. And until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.